Lou gives us um, a brief description of Paul's journey from Corinth to um, Syria in verses 18 and following as uh, an introduction to the story of Apollos. And Paul, having remained many days longer in Corinth, that's where he is when Luke picks up the story, took leave of the brethren there, the church that had been established in that city, and put out to sea for Syria. He evidently had some time constraints. He was trying to get to uh, Jerusalem for the feast of the, of the Passover, which would be in late March or early April, and the sea lanes didn't open up until uh, sometime in March, and so he had just a brief period of time to uh, get to Jerusalem. And he took passage on a ship for Syria, took with him Priscilla and Aquila, this uh, young couple that we talked about a couple of Sundays ago. And uh, then uh, just a brief comment. In Centuria, he had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. Uh, it's been suggested that that was a vow to his mother, but uh, <laughs> I don't think that's uh, what Luke has in mind. Uh, mothers are the same the world over. Uh, a number of years ago, my mother had a stroke, and my father called me and asked me to come home. And I jumped on a plane that afternoon, and I, that's back in the days when I was working with students, and I got haircuts about once every six months. I had a little more hair then. And I had this terrible-looking, droopy, scraggly mustache, which she hadn't seen yet. And I went into her hospital room, and I leaned over the bed and kissed her, and she said something to me, which I couldn't quite catch. And I, I said, what'd you say, Mother? And I put my ear down to her mouth, and she said, cut it off. <laughs> Well, mothers are always the same, but uh, I don't think that's what Luke is referring to here. Uh, Paul apparently had taken a Nazarite vow. He still was very much a Jew culturally, though a Christian in his thinking, and he still uh, practiced the uh, customs of Jewry, though he invested them with new significance, Christian significance, and he had apparently taken Nazarite vows a part of his missionary uh, uh, endeavors in Corinth and uh, had not cut his hair as a part of that vow. And so now, uh, as he leaves the region, he uh, looked up a barber and got a haircut. And then came to Ephesus in verse 19, and he left them there, that is, Priscilla and Aquila, and he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. I think uh, Luke, by this statement, means to tell us that he was there merely one day or, a very, or for a very short period of time and uh, had very little time to do any teaching or evangelizing in the city. This was his first trip to Ephesus. He had been forbidden by the Spirit to go there on his first missionary, second, first part of his second missionary journey. But now after a brief uh, stay, they ask him to continue on. But Luke tells us he did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church in Jerusalem, almost certainly, and then went down to Antioch, which was the sending church for the second missionary journey. And having spent some time there, he departed and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Uh, Luke has a tendency in his history, whenever he's not accompanying Paul, to cov cover the events very rapidly, and he describes a journey of some fifteen to 1,700 miles here in a couple of verses. We don't really know when, what transpired, 
but he went back through the churches in Galatia that he had founded on his first trip through Turkey, and uh, he strengthened the disciples there. Now we come to the story of Apollos in verse 24. The scene shifts from Paul, the apostle and the evangelist, to this uh, bright uh, young man, Apollos. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent or a learned man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, but he was acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside privately, took him to their home, and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Though Paul in the book of Corinthians later describes this uh, young man as a teacher, one who watered in Corinth, uh, his earlier ministry was more apologetic. He was working with Jews, and as Luke says, he refuted them powerfully, with the result that he was a tower of strength to the church in Corinth. They were all encouraged by uh, his evangelism among uh, his Jewish countrymen. Interesting fellow, this Apollos. He's, he's said to be a Jew. He came from Alexandria, which was a city of, of scholars. He was a learned man, highly educated, very eloquent, articulate spokesman. He was um, mighty in the Scriptures. I love that phrase. I wish that could be said of, of all of us, that he was mighty in the Word, specifically the Old Testament. That's really all he knew except that he had some contact with John the Baptist. Uh, Apollos was actually pre-Christian. We can't describe him as a Christian in the sense that we would describe some of Paul's converts because he simply had not yet heard about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The only information he had was what he had gained from those who were the followers of John the Baptist. John had a ministry of uh, awakening people to their need for a Messiah, and pointing out that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And he baptized as a sign of repentance, as he put it. Uh, baptism in, at this period uh, was reserved for Gentile proselytes. When a Gentile wanted to become, to become a Jew, he was baptized as a sign of his change of mind. That's what repentance means. They changed their mind about the direction that they were going, their, uh, going with their life. They were no longer going to live a pagan lifestyle. They were going to become Jews, religiously, and uh, they were baptized as a sign of that identification with, with God's people. The thing that was unique about John the Baptist's ministry is that he was saying, you Jews need to be baptized. You're not even a part of the believing remnant. And that was the distinctive note uh, of, his, of his ministry. It was preparatory to the coming of Christ. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't complete. And this was the ministry that, that Apollo had. He came to Ephesus from Alexandria, and being an intellectual and probably being trained in rabbinic schools, he was permitted to teach in the synagogues in Ephesus, and he began to teach the Jews that the Messiah had come 
and that Jesus was the Messiah and they needed to be baptized as a sign of uh, that change of mind about Jesus, but that's as much as he knew. His ministry was defective. And it happened that uh, Aquila and Priscilla were in the synagogue that morning. If there was a church at all in Ephesus, it was very small. Paul had only spent a day or two there. Aquila and Priscilla hadn't been there very long. So there was a very small group of Christians, if, if indeed there were any Christians at all. And um, Priscilla and Aquila went to the synagogue, and they, were, they happened to be there the day that Apollos came, and he began to speak, and they were immediately impressed with this young man and his ability and, and his learning, and they invited him home for lunch. That's what you do with a preacher, you know, you take him home to lunch. And uh, they explained to him the way more accurately. Now, that is amazing when you stop and think about it. Here is this, uh, this man with a, with a doctorate in theology. He probably wore his academic robes. That was the custom in those days. He was a learned man. Uh, Quilla and Priscilla were, were laborers. They uh, made tents for a living. Uh, he was used to conversing with intellectuals, and he sat across the table and talked to a young couple who probably had a, the equivalent of an eighth-grade education. Uh, he looked at their Levi's and their Pendleton shirts, and he had his academic robes on, and there were hardened hands, and he realized they had something to teach him. There's real humility in this man that he would, would listen to this sort of, of instruction. It reminded me of, of James' comment in James 3, that the wisdom that's from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, full of mercy, easy to be entreated. That is, it's teachable. It's not defensive. He was willing to be, to be instructed. It seems to me that, that this has to be uh, the, the characteristic of, of anyone who grows and and uh, continues to learn. We have to be teachable. We have to be willing to be, to be instructed. Discipleship is always mutual. There's never a situation where one of us is always the discipler and the other person is the disciplee. The slope is never merely one way. It's, it's always uh, reciprocal. We all have things to learn. And one of the marks of this, of this young man is that he was an individual who, despite his learning and the fact that he was mighty in the Scriptures... Uh, he was willing to be taught by this, by this couple. Another thing that strikes me about this story is the place that intellectuals have in the scheme of things. Um, Paul did not say there are not any wise or mighty or noble in the Christian family. He said there are not many. The reason is that, is that there are not many intellectuals in the human race. There are a few and then there are the rest of us who are about a quart low, low but, but uh, there aren't too many who, who really can qualify as intellectuals. But there are some. And the same is true within the body of Christ. Not many, but there are some who are truly gifted in this, in this realm. And when we find people like that, we need to encourage them. Uh, mind is indeed a terrible thing to waste. And when God has given you that sort of asset, it needs to be used for God's sake. Uh, my father used to tell the story of Robert Dick Wilson, who's an interesting character. Most of you probably never even heard of him. But he lived back around the turn of the century. And he realized when he was about 20 years of age that he, ha he had an unusual mind. He was 
really gifted intellectual, intellectually, and uh, a committed Christian. And he determined at that point in his life that he was going to he was going to invest that asset, that resource that God had given to him for God's sake. It was at a period of time uh, when German rationalism was making its way through the seminaries of of America and and all of the great seminaries of the past, Harvard, Yale, and Brown, and and Princeton were were becoming more and more liberal and the radical views of Scripture and inspiration were destroying the faith that, of young uh, seminarians, and this was filtering its way down into the church. And Robert Dick Wilson realized that he could do something about that. And he, he determined when he was 20 years of age to spend the next 15 years of his life uh, in, in man's institutions. He went to the best institutions in the United States and in Europe. And at the same time, he studied the Scriptures so that he not only knew man's books, he knew, he knew God's book. And then he determined to spend the next 15 years of his life in research, doing archaeology and studying the scriptures and reading everything he could get his hands on. And then the next 15 years of his, of his life teaching and lecturing and, and writing. And, and humanly speaking, he's the man who stemmed the tide of, of liberalism in, in the United States. Even today, the Old Testament scholars still go back to Robert Dick Wilson. They, they can hardly say anything more than what, than what he said. And uh, some of you know of, of Bruce Walkey, who took the time to get two doctor's degrees, one from Dallas Seminary and one from Harvard, with the express purpose of answering some of the, uh, the radical criticism of Old Testament scholars on, on the Scriptures. And these men become a source of strength to us in the church, as Apollos did. We discover that there are answers to the questions that, that perplex us. And there's a place for this sort of thing. The point I want to make is that we need to encourage it and we find it in others. And uh, if God has given you that sort of mind, don't waste it. Use it. Don't abuse it. Don't trust in it. There's no power in a great mind. There's only power in God. But it's a resource that, that needs to be used. Well, Luke tells us that Apollos, having been instructed by this couple, then almost immediately went over to Achaia, to Corinth, there's some suggestion that the brothers here in verse 27 who encouraged him were actually Corinthians, not people from the city of Ephesus. One of the early manuscripts, it's clearly not scripture, but it, it's a note by someone who lived shortly after the book of Acts was written, indicates that these brethren were Corinthians who encouraged them to come back over to Corinth and help them there because that was a, a thriving, flourishing church that Paul had established and they needed someone like Apollos there who could carry on the work that Paul had begun. And Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, describes Apollos as a waterer of the seeds that he had planted. I planted, he says. Apollos watered and God gave the increase. This young man went back to, to Corinth and, and had a, a very weighty, impressive, effective, fruitful ministry there. It's sort of interesting that he, he actually outdid the Apostle Paul. It seems that he became far more popular than Paul, and that's why the various schisms developed within the church in Corinth. He was so attractive that a large number of people gathered around him, and, and others said, no, we're of Paul, and others said, no, we're of Peter. And, and it wasn't at all Apollos doing. He didn't want that sort of thing to develop. But it's human nature to be attracted by the person and think that it's their intellect and their personality that gives them power and and it almost resulted in, in, uh, in the church in, in Corinth being destroyed. And so Apollos withdrew again, another indication of his humility, and came back to, Ephes to Ephesus. 
and was associated with the Apostle Paul there and, and drops out of sight until much later when he becomes the messenger who carries the book of uh, Titus, our New Testament book of Titus, to uh, the recipient, Titus, in Crete. And that's the last we hear of Apollos. Except many people in the early church and some moderns like Luther and, and the idea has been, uh, has been uh, 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 mentioned again recently, believe that Apollos was the author of Hebrews. For some reason, there are some long-standing traditions that he may have been the, the man who penned that book. We simply don't know. But he did carry on a very effective and, and fruitful ministry. Now, one of the results of his pre-Christian teaching is described for us in chapter 19, a group of disciples whom Paul found when he came through Ephesus. <clears throat> chapter 19, verse 1. And it came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. This is Luke's word for Christian disciples, Christian followers. So they apparently had some understanding of, of Jesus, but they had the same defective understanding that Apollos had. And, and it seems to me that they were the relics of, of uh, his teaching there. And Paul said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have never, uh, we haven't heard if the Holy Spirit is given. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. It was preparation for the coming of, of Messiah. And uh, Luke shortens his account here, but apparently uh, Paul went on to explain to these 12 disciples what it was that Jesus came to do, something of his life and ministry and his death and burial and resurrection. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying, and there were in all about 12 men. Uh, Paul had made his way across the interior of, uh, of Turkey, and he came down to Ephesus. And again, remember, there was no real church there at this point of, of history, in history. But he found 12 men who seemed to have some knowledge of Jesus. But as he talked to them, he realized that their understanding was incomplete. It was partial, defective in some sense. And so he asked them the question, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Apparently, the uh, Apostle Paul believed that one certain mark of salvation is the presence of the Holy Spirit. That was the uh, sign that denoted someone who had become a believer in Jesus Christ. It wasn't something that happened uh, subsequent to salvation. It wasn't the result of some secondary work of, of grace. It was something that occurred when you believe. As a matter of fact, Paul later describes the Holy Spirit as the seal of the mark, the identifying mark of our inheritance. It's as though as God looks on the human race, wherever he sees the Holy Spirit resident in that individual, that's a mark of one who belongs to him. That's, that, that's what a seal denoted in those days. It was a mark of ownership. They put seals on, on their possessions to show what, uh, what belonged to them. And uh, the same is true today as the Lord looks over this uh, 
this crowd and he sees his spirit indwelling us. That's the mark that we're one of his. Likewise, that's the, that's the identifying mark that we can recognize, the presence of the Spirit of God. It's not something that's, that's immediately observable, but whenever the Spirit of God is resonant in the life of an individual, those, the marks of that residency begin to show. There's what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, self-control, courage. Those are the things that, that identify us as belonging to God. They're the marks of the work of the Spirit of God within us. And Paul sensed that there was something wrong with these believers. They, they didn't have that mark. And so he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, well, we, we didn't know that the Holy Spirit had been given. Most of our translations say, we don't even know if there is a Holy Spirit, but the text literally just says, we don't know if the Holy Spirit is, and you have to supply something. Not that He exists, but that He is given, because these were Jews. And any Jew would know about the Holy Spirit. Uh, Joel had predicted the pouring out of the Spirit of God upon all flesh when, when Messiah came, so they would know about the Holy Spirit. And certainly if they were followers of John the Baptist, they would know, because... John was the one who, who said, I baptize with water, but there comes one after me, the, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to, to latch or to fasten. And uh, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So they, they knew about the Holy Spirit, but they didn't realize that the Messianic age had actually begun. They didn't know anything about, about Pentecost. It was something new to them. And so Paul proceeded to tell them about Jesus' ministry and and his life, and his teaching, and his death, and his burial, and his resurrection, and the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out on all flesh as a sign that, uh, that Messiah had indeed come. And they believed. And they were baptized as a sign of that belief. It's interesting, this is one instance in the New Testament where someone was re-baptized. They had already been baptized once. But they were baptized a second time because it had significance to them now as Christians. And when they believed, the same thing that had happened to the apostles on the day of Pentecost occurred again. The Spirit was poured out. Now, that's not something you can see. But there were signs given so that you could realize that something had happened. And the signs here Luke describes as speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now, this was exactly what had happened on the day of Pentecost. On that uh, great day, the disciples were in the upper room and, and the Spirit was poured out on them and they spilled out into the streets of Jerusalem and they began to speak in foreign languages. It wasn't uh, ecstatic utterances. It wasn't gibberish. It wasn't an angel language. It was a language that everyone could understand. Luke goes out of his way to describe what happened. There were people there from, from Mesopotamia, from Elam, and Persia, and Media, and North Africa, and Italy, and Turkey, and and from all over the world. And they all spoke different dialects. And they say, we hear these men extolling God, praising His mighty works in our own languages, our own dialects. And that, you see, was a... What, what better sign to a group of dyed-in-the-wool, provincial, ethnocentric Jews, you know, who were just thinking about themselves and their country. What better sign to them that God was reaching out and going to bring in the whole world. It was, a, it was a sign, merely a sign to the Jews that Messiah had come. And it happened again in Samaria in Acts 10. 
Peter's experience there of preaching the gospel to Cornelius. And you had a second Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit of God upon these, uh, this Gentile and his family. And the Jews that were with Paul said, well, how can we refuse baptism? Obviously, the Spirit of God is poured on the Gentiles as well. And the same thing happened in Ephesus here in chapter 19. As a sign to those Jews and the Jews in Ephesus that, uh, that the Messiah had come, the age of the King had come. Now, there's no other instance in the book of Acts of this sort of thing happening, and there's no, uh, no description historically of it happening again. It didn't have to happen. It was a non-repeatable sort of thing. There had been these three Pentecosts where the Spirit was poured out and the sign was, was given. And today, the mark of the pouring out of the Spirit is not uh, the, the ability to speak in a, in a foreign language, but rather, it's what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, the things that we described later, those marks of God's character that begin to exhibit themselves in us when we believe. Love, joy, peace, goodness, gentleness, those are the marks. And the effect that we have on others when we go about the world and, and we make contact with our non-Christian friends and with our Christian friends and we have an impact upon their life, as the Spirit quietly works through us to touch other people's hearts. Jesus said in John 7, uh, Those of you who hunger, come to me. And those of you who thirst, believe in me. For out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And uh, then the comment of the writer, This spoke he of the Holy Spirit who was not yet given. That, that's the mark today of a spirit-indwelt man or woman. It's that it's liver, li, living waters flow out of us. We begin to, to touch other people's lives in significant ways and slack their thirst and take away their hunger as we impart truth and, and love and grace to them. And that's what happened to these uh, Ephesian, these, these 12 Ephesians, they became the nucleus of a, of a church that exploded out of Ephesus. And uh, the gospel began to uh, reach other cities around Ephesus, the cities that are mentioned in the, in the book of Revelation, Philadelphia and Sardis and Laodicea and all those other churches were reached as a result of the ministry of this church in Ephesus. Now, um, the moral of this story is take somebody out to lunch this week. I mean it. Um, some of you are thinking now as you anticipate the new year of uh, making some changes in your life, and that's, that's certainly legitimate. There's nothing wrong with uh, making resolutions as long as we realize that the flesh can never, uh, is never consistent in following through but there's nothing wrong with evaluating our life and realizing that we need to change the direction of our life, reorder our priorities, and begin to, uh, to do the things that, that really count. As Paul says in Philippians, he prays for the church in Philippians, that they may approve the things that are excellent, is the way the King James translates it, but really it means to do the things that really count. And that's what we want to do. No one, no one wants to waste his or her life and uh, just uh, be completely out of the mainstream of what God is, is doing in the world. And as we think through this coming year, that's 
that's what we want, want our lives, that's where we want our lives uh, to be, right? In the mainstream, where God can do something with us. And that's why I say, one of the resolutions we ought to make is to take somebody out to lunch. Now, this is what I mean. There are many, many people all around us, Christians who might be described as pre-Christian in their commitment. They don't understand what's going on. They know nothing of the power of the Holy Spirit. They may be dead and sterile in their lives. Or they may be people who think of Christianity only in terms of church and programs and and uh, giving money, perhaps, and getting involved on committees, but they have no understanding of the vitality and the, the excitement and the freshness of, of life when we understand what God really came to do. And then there are those around us who are not Christian at all, but who are predisposed to thinking about their relationship to God because the Spirit of God has been at work in their lives over the Christmas season. I, I find that... Uh, that uh, far from getting dismayed by all the materialism, I, I, I think it has a good effect, as long as we don't get caught up in it. It evokes in people a hunger for something more. The more they get, the more they want, the emptier they feel, and, and the more they're, they're open, I think, to spiritual things. And I found just in chatting with people around me that, that, that many, many people who are not yet Christians are really interested in knowing more about what will fulfill them in this life. There are people like that all over. Well, ask God to, to give you someone like that, just one person, and take them out to lunch and share the gospel with them if they don't know it. Or if they do know it, make a commitment to them to help them to grow up to maturity. And as I said, make it mutual. I think the thing that terrifies us is this feeling that, that I have to disciple someone and what in the world am I going to say? But anyone can, can go to a friend and say, uh, we both need to grow. Let's, let's encourage each other. Let's meet on a regular basis once a week to study the Word and, and pray together. And we'll get some Bible study booklet or whatever that will give us some guidance. And we'll, we'll get into the Word together and help each other to grow. And don't be worried if it's someone even who may know more about the Scriptures than you know. Uh, you may sense that though they know a great deal, they're, they're struggling in some areas of, of, their, of their lives. That doesn't make any difference. Make that commitment. You know what? The, the thing that will, will impact this city is not our building or our choirs or our teaching or any of the programs of the church. What will turn the city of Boise up, upside down is people who have this vision, people who want to reach people. Like uh, Aquila and Priscilla wanted to reach Apollos, and Paul wanted to reach these twelve. And do you realize that if you, if you determine this year to meet with one person so that at the end of this year, that person has the vision and the ability to meet one other person, it would take us only seven years, seven to eight years, to evangelize the entire city of Boise. It's just a simple, it's just simple mathematics to sit down and figure it out. There are seven to eight hundred of us here on Sunday morning. And uh, next year, there would be 1,600, not necessarily going to church here, because that's not the issue. We don't care where they go to church, as long as they're being fed. But if, if the 800 that are involved in this ministry each commit themselves this year to reaching one other person, there'll be 1,600 at the end of the year, 3,200 in two years. And you just figure the thing out, it'll take seven to eight years 
to reach the entire city of Boise. And of course, it won't actually happen because we have an enemy and, and uh, he's not going to let the thing work quite that smoothly. But it's a vision that you and I need to have. It's people reaching people. And if you do that, you'll discover the joy that John speaks about when he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. I can't think of anything more dead or deadening or boring or dull than just playing church this coming year. Just going to church and doing religious things. It's when we start getting involved in people's life that things get exciting. That's what makes the Christian life uh, uh, exciting and stimulating to us. Will you make that commitment this year? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder that we can be useful. I think so often we uh, consider ourselves as, as ineffective and basically useless because we don't know enough or don't have the right opportunities or we find ourselves too encumbered with uh, things that take up our time that don't really matter. Help us, Lord, to, uh, to be decisive this year, to determine the things that really matter and to do those things and to make a set of priorities that are your priorities. We pray that we would, would be led to someone uh, within our circle of friends who wants and needs to be encouraged and make us willing to make that investment of time and energy that's necessary to help them grow. We look for uh, we look for great things to occur, Lord, as a result. And we thank you for your Spirit who indwells us and who gives us the power to do all things. We're reminded of Paul's statement: We can do all things through Christ, who strengthens us. And in that Spirit, we go this morning to do your will. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.